has all kinds of resources there. Uh, he's also ha- has a table out here in the in the lobby uh, with some books for sale. Uh, if you'd like to look at some of those, um, they do a tremendous job, and so they uh, have the opportunity at times to give away a lot of resources because of the donations that are given. And so we're thankful for the work that they do. Uh, we have the opportunity each year to attend that uh, benefit dinner uh, up at Henderson, and uh, Chad uh, Thompson does a great job uh, putting that together. And so maybe you've heard Kyle before, uh, maybe not, but I, I do want to say that you're in for a treat. And I'm excited about the things that he'll be talking about, especially here during our Bible class hour. Uh, but also, I want to take this opportunity to let you know he will be with us back in the banquet room uh, on the next three Wednesday nights. So uh, we have um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven or eight opportunities to hear Kyle uh, today and over the next few weeks. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about for the, the things that he'll share with us, uh, the knowledge that he has, and, and also not just the knowledge, but uh, his desire to serve God. Uh, he comes from a great family. Uh, I was able to know his older brothers at Freed Hardeman, and they're great men of God as well. And, uh, and so I'm thankful that my friend Kyle Budd is here to, to present these lessons on uh, current events, things that we need to be thinking about um, and uh, applying to our life and praying about. And so uh, without uh, further ado, I'm going to let Kyle come. But before Kyle comes, I'm gonna, we're going to have a prayer, and then we'll uh, have our Bible class hour. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for all that you give us. Father, we want to thank you for this country that, we, that you allow us to live in. Father, we ask that you will continue to bless us, Father, so that uh, we can continue to bring glory to you. Father, we are also thankful for the church, uh, all, all the world over. And Father, we ask that you will continue to bless your church. Father, we are thankful for our brother Kyle. And Father, for the good work that that he has done over the years and continues to do and um, standing for truth and standing for your word and and sharing those things with others through the many resources that they have and produce at Apologetics Press. We're also thankful for the many venues that you've blessed him with the opportunity to speak in, in debates, youth rallies, and youth conferences. Father, we're thankful that you have blessed him in that way. We ask that you will continue to bless him, Father, and bless his family. Father, also bless us as we have the opportunity to hear from him today. Father, we thank you for this church at Savannah. We ask that you will continue to bless us as well as we try to be a light in this community. Father, most of all, we want to thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Go with us, watch over us, keep us safe, forgive us of all of our many sins, In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Tommy loved Mr. Johnson. Mr. Johnson was Tommy's sixth grade science teacher. And for the first time in Tommy's life, he was actually having fun learning. And that was because Mr. Johnson was excited about science. Mr. Johnson was one of those charismatic type teachers. He was just out of the university, had a master's degree, drove a red convertible sports car, wore clothes that the kids thought were cool, and wanted the kids to interact with him. And that's what he did. 
He made sure that the things that they were learning in science were interactive, they were fun, they were exciting. He would do things like take the kids on nature walks. Now every now and then, Tommy understood that there were some things that he was saying, Mr. Johnson, that, that didn't really go with what he had learned growing up. For instance, Mr. Johnson would say, Class, isn't it amazing how this beetle evolved the ability to fly? Or, Class, isn't it wonderful how this tree evolved the ability to produce a chemical in its bark that protects itself from bugs and things like that? Now, like I said, Tommy would catch those things kind of every now and then, but, but he never really understood what was happening. It really never dawned on him that Mr. Johnson was teaching some stuff very far removed from what the Bible teaches in Genesis until today. And today was very different. In fact, today Mr. Johnson stood before the class and he said, Class, today we're going to learn about how the universe began. Can anyone tell me how that happened? Eugene Lepton's hand shot up. Eugene sat on the front row. Eugene read his science book for fun. And he made 100 on every single science test unless there was a bonus question. And then he made 103. And Mr. Johnson was used to seeing Eugene's hand, Eugene's hand shoot up. And he said, Eugene, yes, can you tell me how the universe got here? And Eugene said, 13.82 billion years ago, there was a tiny singularity that is commonly referred to in the scientific circles as the Big Bang. It exploded. And he gave the textbook spiel about how supposedly there was something called a singularity that exploded in something that is called the Big Bang. And subsequently, the universe started expanding. And the universe that we have now was a product of blind, random chance processes over multiplied billions of years. Mr. Johnson said, that's very good, Eugene. Thank you. Now, the class had about 28 kids in it. And 26 of them had been taught something totally different than what they just heard Eugene say. And they all wondered what in the world they were going to do about that. And they were encouraged when Stephen raised his hand. Mr. Johnson said, Stephen, can I help you? Do you have a question? Stephen said, that's not right. It was a, a brave but nervous sounding voice. And Mr. Johnson said, what's not right? Stephen said that idea about the big explosion, that thing called the Big Bang, he said, that's not right. Mr. Johnson said, what do you mean it's not right? All of the most brilliant scientists in the world today believe it. And Stephen said, well, my dad said that the universe was created by God. Now, that's what most of the kids in the class had been taught. And they whipped their heads around to look at Mr. Johnson to see what he was going to do with that piece of information because that's what their parents believed. And what was Mr. Johnson going to do with that? And they were real surprised when a smile crept across Mr. Johnson's face. And he said, Stephen, thank you for bringing that up. I was hoping that you would. Where did your dad get that information? And Stephen said, from the Bible. Mr. Johnson said, thanks, I was hoping somebody would say that. And he went to his desk drawer and he opened his top left desk drawer and he pulled out a black leather bound book. And he said, Stephen, did, did your dad Bible look anything like this? And, and it did. So he turned to the first pages of this book and he started reading. And in his reading he said some things like hath and hast and thou and shalt and doeth and createth and maketh. And he said, class, does this book sound old to you? And 
for whatever else it sounded. It, it did sound old. He said, let me explain to you some things about this book. This book has got some real good moral precepts in it, real good moral principles. In fact, there's a man in this book named Jesus. Some people say he lived, some people say he didn't. But there's some stuff that Jesus said, this literary character, that's real good stuff for us to follow. In fact, Mr. Johnson said, Jesus gave us something that's called the golden rule, doing to others as you would have them do to you. That's a great rule for talking to others and dealing with others. He said, but this book has got a lot of mistakes in it. He said, in fact, this book is so old that modern science has proven most of it to be wrong. And then he said with a chuckle, did you know that the people who wrote this book thought that the world was flat? And he turned over to a passage of Scripture and he started reading about the four corners of the earth. And he said, the people who wrote this book thought the earth had four corners. Can you believe that? And with that statement, he closed his Bible and he put it back in the top drawer And he left 28 kids sitting in that classroom wondering what in the world they were going to think from now on. Do you think that happens in our world today? In one sense, what I just gave you is fictional. There was never a person called Mr. Johnson or Tommy. Those people are just illustrative. I'm just using them to illustrate a point. But in another sense... That story is played out multiple times a day all across our country. And I'm going to tell you how I know that. I guess it was about a month ago now, I was scheduled to speak at the Grant Street Church of Christ there right outside of Florence, there in Decatur. And I was supposed to do a three-lesson series on why we're losing our children. And I'm going to show you some of those statistics. But in the course of that, I was not planning on talking about Christian evidences or apologetics or anything about the inspiration of the Bible, the existence of God. I didn't think that would factor in very much. Of course, that's what I deal with. been at Apologetics Press now for going on 18 years. But I thought this was just going to be what I call just a straight Bible series of lessons. And what I mean by that is, I thought I was just going to go and we were going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and we were going to read about how God said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you shall teach these precepts to your children when you walk in the way, when you rise up, when you lie down, when you're eating dinner, etc. I thought it was going to be a, hey, parents, you need to be strong Christians. You need to teach your kids the Bible. And you need to make sure that you present a good example. That's what I thought I was going to deliver. But then I started doing research on why are we losing our children in the Lord's church and religiously in general. And what I found was very surprising to me. And I'm going to introduce you to the information that I found in the course of my research. If you were to look at the Public Religion Research Institute from 2016, this was a survey and a study that was done just last year, what you would find is that 25% of Americans currently identify as non-religious. They've been given the name nuns, N-O-N-E-S, because they don't identify with any religion of any sort. They don't say that they're connected to any religious group at all. That is the highest number of people who say they're not affiliated with any religion in the history of our nation. That's one out of four. 25%. Now, as you continue to look at that, 
you see that 39% of 18 to 29-year-olds are nuns. So that means if you were walking down the street and you talked to 10 people that were between the ages of 18 and 29, four of those people that you would talk to would say, we are not religious at all. We do not affiliate with any religious group. We do not have any religious beliefs whatsoever. That's four out of every ten of all of those from 18 to 29 years old. And then you look at that next one. 64% of young nuns were raised religious and they left. Okay, so the four of the ten that you talked to that said we don't have any religious belief... 2.6 of those, of course you couldn't break it into that, but let's say we had 100 that we talked to and 39 of them were non-religious. And out of that 39, you would have about 25 or so that were religious at one time. They were raised in religion, they were raised in a church, they were raised in Christianity, and they're not now. As you continue to look at this idea, Pew Research... August 16th, now this is the Pew Research Organization, it's a different organization. Here's what he is explaining to you about their research in 2016. As part of a new survey, we asked these people to explain in their own words why they no longer identify with a religious group. And here's what he said. About half of current religious nuns who were raised in religion indicate that a lack of belief led them to move away from religion. This includes many respondents who mention science as the reason they don't believe in religious teachings. Here's what I discovered. One of the very biggest reasons young people are leaving religious faith is because they don't believe that the Bible and science are consistent and they have been taught that science has disproven what the Bible says. Now, let me try to put that in some more concrete numbers for you. Right now, depending on where you look, go into Google, type why Christians are losing their kids, you're going to get this statistic that the lowest number is 60% and it goes on up to 75%. That in religious groups, Catholic, Christian, now put Christian in a broad sense, the the biggest term, Protestant, Catholic, non-denominational, etc. That in Christianity, we are losing right now between 60 and 75% of all the young people that grow up in churches. Now, I'm going to take the lower of that, and we're just going to say 60%. Okay, so if you were to go to any denomination, Catholic church, etc., in the area here, and you were to look at the 15-year-olds, in 10 years, 6 out of every 10 of 15 to 18-year-olds in 10 years are not going to be in church at all. So, let's say you had 10 kids sitting up front, 1, 2, 3, 5, 7, 9, 10. You might have to use both these front two rows. We've got 10 kids sitting up on... In general Christian circle, six of them will be gone and most of them will never ever come back. Now in the Lord's Church, Flavel Yakely wrote a book titled Why They Left, Listening to Those Who Left Churches of Christ. And he says in the Lord's Church, we're doing a little bit better. We're not losing 60% of our young people. We're losing about 45%. Now, in one way, okay, great. We're doing better than the greater religious world. But in another way, here's what I want you to think about that. 
45% of all the young people who grow up in the Lord's church are leaving the church. Now, it's one thing to throw a stat out there. Okay, that's a statistic. Yeah, okay, it's just a number. Just a number. Now do this. In your mind, picture 10 of your young people in this congregation. Picture where they sit. Who their parents are. The last time you shook their hand or talked to them when you walked out of this auditorium. In your mind, put them right up here on the front row. Maybe the front two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Let's say five girls, five boys. In ten years, four or five of them will not be here. One of the entire pews will be gone. And they won't be back. Now, here's what we find. As you listen to this statement about half of the current religious nuns who were raised in religion, 49%, indicate that a lack of belief led them away from their church. So if we're going to lose, let's say, five of these young people, half of them approximately are going to leave because of unbelief. So you could say up to half, up to 20-25% of the kids that are not going to be here in the next 10 years are going to be gone because of unbelief and much of that is because of ideas that science and the Bible are contradictory and that the Big Bang and various evolutionary teachings are right and creation is wrong. Okay, now that was disturbing to me. And here's why that was so disturbing to me. Because we can do something about that. But I'm afraid that lots of times we just simply aren't doing anything about that. At least we're not doing enough about it. And so, here's what it it made me realize. Okay, I've been working on Apology Express for the last 18 years or so. And... I deal with these kind of people all of the time, but I thought it was a much smaller minority. I thought because I work at AP, that's why I'm getting so much, uh, um, there's such a need for me to talk to people. I'll have a mom call me and say, hey, can you talk to my son? He's an atheist now. Or a dad call me and say, hey, my daughter grew up in the Lord's church and now she doesn't believe in God anymore. And I thought I was getting that stuff because I work at AP and they're just coming to me because it seems like a whole lot more than it is because that's where I work. But when I started doing the research, what I realized is, no, it doesn't seem like more than it is. That really is one of the major factors as to why we are losing so many young people. These were some of the quotes from some of the research that was done. Because I grew up and realized it was a story like Santa or the Easter Bunny. I realized that religion is in complete contradiction with the rational and scientific world and to continue to subscribe to a religion would be hypocritical. It no longer fits what I understand of the universe. Now, I, I know the numbers, but on a, on a personal level, let me tell you what happened to me probably now going on about 15 years ago. We were out of school, had been out of college, had a free, went to free, stayed about four and a half years there and graduated and grew up in Columbia, Tennessee. Had a group of friends that, no, we had probably 60 or 70 young people in the Lord's Church that we hung out with, did youth group stuff with. Had a, one very, very good friend. In fact, I would have considered him one of my best friends. In high school, and then we went separate ways. He went to a university, I went to a different one. 
and he was doing all kinds of different things. We had worked together growing up in Columbia. We would go to the Bahamas and do mission work every year. I think we went for about five to seven years straight, door knocking, doing some great evangelistic work there. It was exciting times. Many of the people in the Bahamas were becoming Christians. The church was growing. He graduated, I graduated, we kind of went our separate ways. And then one of our mutual friends, we'll call uh, my my good friend there, we'll call him John. One of our mutual friends said, you know, John doesn't doesn't believe in God anymore. I said, I don't believe that for a second. I said, no, are you kidding me? I said, I don't believe that at all. John used to go do mission work with us. He door knocked down the burning hot, humid streets of the Bahamas. No way, I'm not believing that. So I immediately went home, got on the internet. I had John's email. Hadn't talked to him in a while. I sent him an email and I said, John, somebody just told me that you are an atheist, that you do not believe in God anymore. Is that true? He wrote me back. He said, yes. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God anymore. I just don't think that there is enough evidence to prove God exists. I was shocked. Now, here's what we're finding. Most of you in this room, if you are 40 years old and above, you have never really worried or even been concerned or had doubts about the three core pillars of Christianity. The core pillars of Christianity are, number one, the existence of God, number two, the inspiration of the Bible, and number three, the deity of Christ. If you were to have asked me, Kyle, when you were growing up from 15 to 18, did you ever wonder if there was a God? I could look you straight in the face and without flinching or pausing for one second, I could say, no, never wondered for one second. It was never a concern of mine. I always knew that there was one. If you were then to have said, Kyle, did you ever have trouble with your faith because you had doubts about the inspiration of the Bible, doubts that the Bible actually did come from God? Without flinching, without waiting a single second, I could have looked you in the eye and in all honesty said, no, never was concerned about that, never had a doubt, not a one. If someone would have said, Kyle, have you ever been concerned about the idea that Jesus might not be God's son or that teaching? I would have said, no, everybody knows Jesus is God's son. Religious discussions did not focus on those three ideas. In fact, most of the time, religious discussions went something like this. Over in Acts chapter 2, here's how the Bible says to become a Christian. And someone else who was trying to think about greater spiritual realities would say something like, well, yeah, but that's not what the Bible says over in Romans chapter 10, 9, and 10 where it says if you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth, you'll be saved. And so then we would go to Romans 6 and we would say, yeah, but the people in the book of Romans that they're writing to, they were already baptized believers into Christ because Romans 6, 3 through 6 says, don't you know as many of us as were baptized into Christ have been buried... And that's how, what we were trying to uncover, what we were trying to get down to was, what's the Bible really saying? And so, because we, growing up, didn't have those concerns, sometimes we think that since we just got that and we never had to struggle with it and we didn't worry about that, the people who are younger should just get it like we did. But they don't. And I'm going to show you why they don't. Learning about evolution when I went away to college. Lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence of a creator. I just realized somewhere along the line that I didn't really believe. Now, let me stop right here, press pause on our discussion, and say these statements are ill-informed and absolutely positively wrong. 
What I mean by that is there's no real legitimate scientific evidence for evolution. The evidence that is available points overwhelmingly to the fact that there is a God. What they are saying is what they've been taught to say in places that don't give all of the truth and all of the evidence. So when they say lack of any sort of scientific or specific evidence for a creator, that's not true at all. In fact, one of the leading atheists in the world by the name of Anthony Flew, who debated Thomas Warren in 1976, he had the, has, still to my knowledge, has the philosophical atheistic paper that's been downloaded and written about and studied to a greater degree than any other paper in the last five decades. In the last 50 years, Anthony Flew was the world's leading atheist. In 2006, he came out at the age of about 81 with a book titled, There is a God, How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Became a Believer. And here's what he said. He said, my mode of operation has always been to follow the evidence where it has led me. I thought that the evidence had led me to atheism, but as I started studying the scientific information more and saw DNA and the code that writes living organisms' patterns and writes their blueprints, he said, I realized that couldn't come about by chance processes. And so, if I'm going to follow the evidence where it leads, I'm going to have to now say, The evidence demands that there is an eternal, intelligent creator behind the formation of this universe. Okay, now what these people are saying, hey, that there's no evidence or specific scientific information that points to God, that's not true. But that's what they think is true. And so they say, hey, I just don't believe in God anymore because there's no evidence for Him. Now there is, they just haven't been given it. And so they think that's a legitimate statement. Continue with me. This young man says, I wasn't reading anything in particular, but just was with school. I always had been very smart and I was always studious, but I started enjoying math and science more. I just realized the discrepancy between religion and science. I guess that was another shaking point. Obviously, the two can coexist fairly easily. People do it all the time. But for me, I was one of those more towards science. Well, science ends up things. Now listen, let, let me repeat. There's not a discrepancy between New Testament Christianity and science. In fact, everything we know to be a scientific fact fits the Bible perfectly. Things multiply after their kind. They don't change from one kind to another. That's exactly what the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1. You can look at the design in this world and see that there was an intelligent designer. That's exactly what Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says when it says, For since the beginning of creation, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. I don't have time to go into that information. It's hours and hours of great material. We could do it. But I'm telling you why these people say they're leaving the faith. Because they think science and religion are at odds. Now why do they think that? Well, here's what I'll suggest. I believe they think that because we haven't been proactive teaching them differently because we had hoped that they'd just pick it up like we did. But they're not going to just pick it up like we did. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to show you what's different about now as opposed to the good old days. Read it with me if you don't mind. This was Barry. He's an 80-year-old atheist. In fact, one of the saddest things that I think I can present to a group is a person who's an octogenarian that has yet to follow the evidence where it leads and come to the truth of believing in God. 
But here's what he says about his atheistic life. He says, when I was a young person in the 1940s, being atheist was work. There were almost no books on the topic, no magazine articles, no columns in the newspaper. Everyone was assumed to be some sort of theist. Today, the books of Dawkins, Dennett, Harris, Hitchens are readily available to any young person questioning the religion he or she was born into. The internet offers a plethora of information about both theism and atheism, so it's much easier to figure out if atheism is a good fit. Add to that the fact that young people are openly questioning their religious birth, their religion of birth, and that religions do not have good answers to skeptics, and it is a wonder more young people haven't come over yet. Now, most religions don't have good answers to the skeptics' problems because in various parts of their religion that they are teaching, there are philosophical problems, real problems. I'll give you an example. I was sitting across the table from a couple atheists in Florence, Alabama. We were eating at Rosie's there downtown, and they said, well, we got a problem with Christianity. I said, what is it? They said, well, we can't believe in a God that would create some people and elect them to go to heaven. And it didn't matter what they chose, didn't matter what they did, they were going to heaven no matter what, and would create other people and choose them to go to hell and call them reprobate. And it didn't matter what they did, didn't matter how good they tried to be, doesn't matter what they tried to accomplish, they're going to hell no matter what. And I sat and listened, shook my head, and I said, yes sir, no, I wouldn't believe in a God like that either. And they said, what do you mean you wouldn't believe in a God like that? That's what Christianity teaches I said, no, that's not what Christianity teaches. I said, there was a man who claimed to be a Christian and his name was John Calvin and he taught a system of Calvinism where he taught that God picked some people to go to heaven and picked some people to go to hell regardless of their choices. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And then I took him over to the book of Ezekiel and showed where Ezekiel explains that the soul that sins shall die. And it's not the person who inherits any sin because you don't inherit sin from your father and you're not pre-selected to go to heaven or hell and it's your ultimate choice. Now those two guys that were 30 years old or so at the time, they looked across at me and they said every single person who calls himself a Christian that we've ever talked to said that some people go to heaven and some people go to hell because that's how God picks it and they can't do anything about it. I have never heard what you're telling me. Now, is it true that some religious groups don't have good answers to the skeptical challenge? Yeah. Do you know if there was a God who picked people to go to heaven and picked people to go to hell, regardless of their actions, that would be unjust, immoral, and not defensible? That's not what New Testament Christianity's got, is it? You see, we've got the most robust, flawless, philosophical system that has not a single hole in it. New Testament Christianity, if presented correctly, cannot be refuted. It has all the answers. But, but as you look at this, you realize why our young people are having such trouble, don't you? You didn't read that stuff when you were growing up. It wasn't a challenge to you. And so, because it hasn't been a challenge to us, we've just kind of thought it shouldn't be a challenge to our young people. But let me ask you a question. How many of you have thought, okay, if I have a grandson, or I have a daughter, or I have a niece, or a nephew, they're going to run into these teachings from Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, 
Richard Dawkins. They're going to be told that God is a murderer because of the stuff he did in the Old Testament. And they're going to be told that there's no scientific evidence for the existence of God. And I've got to prepare them for that. And so I have taken this step and this step to prepare them for that. Have you done that? You know, a lot of us haven't. It's kind of like uh, growing up, I... uh, I was taught to weed eat. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a class on weed eating. When I transferred out to Santa Fe, Santa Fe, you pronounce it Santa Fe if you're from there. If you don't, it looks like it's supposed to be pronounced Santa Fe. But it's not. It's Santa Fe. And at Santa Fe, we had a shop class where the teacher there, Mr. Arnold, taught us about all kinds of stuff, about woodworking, about how to build an engine, broke down a tractor. And one of the things he taught us was how to weed eat. And he explained to you which direction you need to move the head of the weed eater to make sure that the grass goes away from you. And if you move it a certain other direction, it will shoot it back at you, etc. I have been weed eating since I was 14 years old. And I'm great at it. Truth is, I have this little muscle on my arm that I call my weed eater muscle because I've hardly seen anybody with a muscle like this. And you can't see it through my jacket, but when I do my little wrist like that, this little muscle pops up right here because I've been holding a... Well, if you know much about weed eating... Maybe the old, I don't know if you remember the old little yellow McCullough weed eaters. Yeah, they had a little bent shaft. We would burn up about five of those a year mowing grass around Columbia, Tennessee. And so I thought, well, we got to do something better than this McCullough. I mean, that we would literally burn the head off of the metal shaft. And then somebody told me about a weed eater that you couldn't burn the head off of, and it would chop down a tree if you put the right string on it. It was called a Shindawa. And I thought, oh, I'm going to get one of those. But it was 285 bucks at the time, and the McCulloughs were about 65 bucks a piece. And I thought, well, that's, gonna be, that's, a, that's a lot of money for a weed eater. But I splurged and got me one. And ran that thing for years and thought I had something a close, to, close to an Apache helicopter hooked to the end of a metal shaft. I mean, I was, I was great at it. I'm terrific at weeding. If somebody said, hey, you want to ride a mower or you want to weed, weed eat? I said, give me a weed eater. Now, my son, is, he's 14 years old. He can now ride a zero-turn John Deere Z450 that has, it doesn't even have a steering wheel. It has two little bars that you use to control. You know what I'm talking about? These two, okay. I've never seen one of those when I was 14 years old. I couldn't have ridden one of those at 14 years old. That, it, it took me several tries and several really big skid marks in people's yards to figure out how to control one of those things. And that was much later in my life. Why? Because they didn't have when I was growing up. But boy, they had weed eaters. And I learned to run weed eaters. But you know what my son can't do? He can drive a, a zero-turn John Deere tractor that doesn't even have a steering wheel. But he's terrible at weed eating. In fact, I don't know if he's ever done it. I don't know if he can even do it. Now, what if I put my weed eater, I've moved to a steel weed eater now, and I'll put it in front of Drew, my son, who can drive a zero-turn, no-steering-wheel John Deere, and I say, Drew, you need to weed eat. And he says, okay. So he goes to that weeder. Now, he knows how to turn on the John Deere. He knows that you have to have the blade down on both the bars in a certain position. You have to have that break up, etc. He can turn on my John Deere. He can ride it. I said, all right, start that thing, go weed eat. And he says, okay. Uh, gets down there, he starts pulling that string. It doesn't start. 
and I'm doing some rounds on the John Deere. I come back and Drew's still sitting at that weeder. I say, Drew, come on, weedy. And he said, well, I can't get it started. You, you mean you can't get it started? It's the easiest thing ever. Just start the thing and weedy. Oh, you know, but it's not the easiest thing ever. It's the easiest thing ever if you've been taught to do it. See, you've got to press that little bubble on the top of that steel weed eater. It's a little bubble that sends gas into the carburetor. And then you've got to flip that little plastic orange switch up to choke to start it. And then... That's the first time I've ever heard that in my whole, in my whole life. I've been preaching. I bet I preach 60 places a year. I have never heard the... Uh, a theme park ride voice come over and say, you've got five, five minutes till what? That's, that's almost kind of scary. You've got five minutes. Five and two. All right. Normally I just get a bell, some little chimes. Okay. Now, let, let me just go back. All right. If you know how to do a weed eater, it's easy to do. You press the button, you flip the thing, you turn it up to choke, it cranks up, you wait just a minute, you flip it down to run, and you make sure that little button on the gas thing is flipped to the line instead of the zero, and you're good to go. I mean, I really, I'm, I'm, I can go out and I can take my steel weed eater, and if I'm real careful, I can weed it in my suit and not get any grass on it at all. Seriously, I'm good. I'm, I'm, now, I have to go slow. It would take me about an hour to do what I, you could do in about 15 minutes, but... But my son can't do that. Why? You know, I've never taken the time to sit him down and say, okay, here's how you do a weed eater. What I do now is I just let him ride the John Deere and I weed eat. Now, if I don't teach him how to weed eat, he's going to have to figure it out himself and it'll take him a whole lot longer to figure it out by himself than it would if I just showed him. Or I could take 30 minutes and I could say, Drew, this is how you weed eat. Now, here's what I'm suggesting to us as a church. We haven't understood that we have to be proactive in teaching our kids the core beliefs of Christianity. There is a God. The Bible is God's Word. Jesus Christ is God's Son. Because that wasn't a problem for us. But it is for them. And so, since I taught that lesson at Grant Street, I've decided I've got to teach it at every congregation I go to. Everywhere I go, every congregation needs to know that you need to be proactive teaching your young people the core beliefs of Christianity. Now, I don't care how you do it. And what I mean by that is I work at Apology Express. We've got all kinds of great material. You can get it at Apology Express. Almost every bit of our material is free because we are a nonprofit organization. You know what that means? It means we lose money every single year. We're professional money losers. We do it great because lots of times we give away, sometimes if I understand it right, three hundred dollars to $400,000 of material a year. Right now, we've got a book. I've got it out there. It's called Truth Be Told. It sells for $15.95. i got 10 bucks on it outside. This book has every single thing that your 5th through 8th grader needs to know about the existence of God and how the Bible corresponds perfectly with science. Now, if you don't have 10 bucks today, okay, put 5 out there. If you don't have 5 bucks out there, take one. We don't care how well, we sell the book because we have to because it costs us money to print it but we lose money every year and are totally fine with that what I'm saying though is I had a, a guy from Mission Point that he goes to Africa he looked at all our stuff he said Kyle man I wish I had 7,000 of those truth be told I said alright we'll see what we can do went around asked for congregations to pay for those we sent 7,000 over two years ago to two countries in Africa I called him back about three months ago and he said, oh, hey, the books are going great, but I'll tell you what, I got into two more countries. I need 7,000 more. 
said, okay. I said, what I can do? Started praying about it. We've got 27000 of the $31,000 that we needed to raise to send the other 7000 to him. He hadn't paid a dime for him. Got a school that invited me to come speak on Author Day. And Author Day, they said, hey, uh, this guy was a member of the Lord's Church. He said, hey, uh, you're an author. You've written a book. I said, yeah, on the existence of God. He said, can you come tell us about the book? Public school close to Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I said, yeah, absolutely, positively. Went and spoke for 45 minutes on the proof that God corresponds perfectly with everything we know to be true in this world. Afterward, we put about 350 of these books on a table and said, if you want one, come pick it up. Third through fifth graders, about 350 of them, came and picked it up. Said, hey, can I take one to my cousin? Yeah, have every one we got. Now here's what I'm saying. You might not get this book. Maybe you get something else. But we as a church... we got to do something about that. No, we gotta, we got to do something about proactively teaching our kids that science and the Bible do not contradict each other and that God and the Bible are still the only true relevant answers to their life. And we've got to make sure that... I'm going to leave you with this, and we'll be done. One more thing. Had a guy come up to him about three months ago, looked me in the eye, he's about 24 years old, he's almost crying. I believe his name was Matt. I was getting ready to get my PowerPoint all ready. He said, let me tell you something. I stopped. I could tell he was sincere and earnest. I stopped, shook his hand. I said, hey, what's your name? He told me his name. He said, I just got to come tell you something. He said, when I grew up, I loved biology and I loved the sciences. He said, and I was on the verge of becoming an atheist. He said, but somebody introduced me to your materials at Apologetics Press. He said, and I started reading those and realizing the truth of God's existence and how God fits perfectly with what we know to be science. He said, and that changed my life and saved my faith. And I just want to thank you for that. Now, could have been somebody like you that got him in touch with the materials. Like I said, we don't want any credit. God gets all the glory. But we've got to be proactive in teaching our kids the fundamentals of Christianity. Thank you for your kind time and attention.